Welcome to Wadcast. I'm Charlene Gianetti, editor of Woman Around Town. Today we're going to talk about a continent far from our shores, but one that is becoming more important on the world stage. Jacqueline Sabanda was born in the African nation of Zimbabwe, then raised and educated in England. She now lives in the Washington, D.C. area. Like many Africans, Jacqueline grew up with an awareness of how the mainstream media's focus on Africa's wars, coups, and famines framed a narrative about the continent. As the Africa Communications Fellow at Georgetown University's Center for Social Impact Communication, Jacqueline convened and moderated a conversation on Communicating Africa, Transcending Borders with Digital Communication. Noticing more and more startups in tech, storytelling, and other industries powered by African women entrepreneurs, Jacqueline was inspired to launch 54 Stories, a conversation with African women entrepreneurs on the continent and in the diaspora. I'm excited to have her here to tell us more about this exciting project. Welcome, Jacqueline. Hi, Charlene. Thank you so much for inviting me to this conversation. Thank you, Jacqueline. Africa is the second largest and second most populous continent, and also when compared to the other continents, has the youngest average population. This surprised me, 19.7 years compared to a worldwide medium age of 30.4. I found that really surprising. But Africa is often talked about as one big country, rather than as a continent with 54 countries. And that also surprises me because I'm not sure people can name more than five <laughs> African countries if we approach them. Uh, do you think that Africa has an identity problem? And what do you think can be done to change how the continent and its countries are viewed by other governments worldwide? That's a great question. So I don't think Africa has an identity problem. Um, I think it's more the world <laughs> has a knowledge <laughs> gap when it right. comes to Africa. Um, and I think historically, you know, when news was coming via... <laughs> historically, when news was coming via limited sources, so you had the BBC and some of these global um, entities telling global news, um, there were very sweeping generalizations when it came to Africa, and typically it was around the same themes as you mentioned, um, war, coup, famine, but um, that image is outdated. Um, but also, it ignores the fact that, you know, those things are not unique to Africa, and we know that. History tells us that. So, no, Africa doesn't have an identity problem, um, but what Africa does have, as you pointed out, is a fabulously young, energized, energetic, and, you know, very big population of young people that embrace digital, um, that see how other people or their peers are living in other countries, and have ambitions that balance back, um, both a global view and a local view for each country and, of course, a regional view for their peers across the continent. Um, so I personally am excited about what's going on in Africa from my regular visits to see family and friends 
Um, the energy is amazing. The, the potential of young people is amazing. And it's also a great signal. The fact that we have such a big young population is a great signal that a lot of the development efforts over the decades are actually paying off. You know, children are living past the first 24 hours of their life because the interventions are there and access to health has improved. Um, we're not having the big famines which for a very long time dominated the new stream about Africa as well. So Africa is definitely, from what I can see, rising. So this is all good news? Yes, absolutely, absolutely, because you need a pipeline of talent. Um, you need the next generation of leaders, and for them to know what to do, they have to have lived long enough through the current situation, have enough information on the historical context as far as leadership and politics in the continent, and be equipped um, with their interest in the wider world, um, be able to place their own countries and then their continent within a global context, and to make decisions that will ultimately empower them individually and absolutely collectively drive the continent's development into the future. So uh, you were born in Zimbabwe. Tell us I a little was. bit about your country of origin. I have so little to tell because I left at the age of seven. Um, we moved to England with my mother. Um, like many um, of her generation, they were moving for op um, economic opportunities. She moved to train as a nurse, and then my brother and I moved with her. Um, but what I would say is, having moved back to Zimbabwe in 98 and lived and worked there for 2000, so a whole 20 years after I'd first left as a child. Interesting. Um, wow. I was, I, I was very excited then. Um, and I'm even more excited now because, as you know, we recently had a first transition of power right. <laughs> within the new independent Zimbabwe context. Um, and if you were watching social media, you'll be fully aware that um, we were a bit of a masterclass in how to do a coup. That's not a coup. Mm -hmm. And in fact, <laughs> we're now calling it a master coup. Um, it was beautiful to see a peaceful transition. It was beautiful to see how eclectic the Zimbabwean population is. You had all colors, all religions, and all people on the same page, whether they were in country or in the diaspora. We were all united in our wish to see a healthy transition of power, a peaceful transition of power. And for a long time, I think Zimbabwe was ridiculed to some degree because we'd had the same leader for over 30 years. Um, but my perspective on it is, you know, when you look back um, years and years from now, history will show that that 37 years was nothing in the history of a country. But what it did by us was time as Zimbabweans to, to define our own democracy and what we want as a nation. But secondly, it saved us from having children become soldiers um, and also destruction of infrastructure. So we peacefully and patiently waited. You know, we participated in elections, we were disappointed sometimes, we were happy sometimes, but we never turned that frustration or that waiting game into an excuse to self-destruct. So I think is, that matters. Can that be a good example for other countries in Africa? I think Africa? it's a brilliant example, yeah. not just for countries in Africa, but countries but in general. You know, you can have democracy and almost force change through staunch patience, mm -hmm. um, but also being united 
regardless of race, age, political leanings, united in the idea that it's time for change, but also then willing to stand with others on the streets peacefully, um, willing that change to happen until it became impossible for, for, the, for the old administration to ignore the will of the people. And that's such an important lesson for uh, all countries today, uh, Jacqueline. So uh, when did you move to the United States? I moved to the U.S. in 2007. Um, my move for economic opportunity, but also more for family. I happen to have a lot of family in the Deep South, <laughs> um, Alabama, Georgia, Mississippi. Yeah. Um, and people always ask, how? You know, how come there? But um, I think <laughs> the political history of those parts of the U.S. are pretty similar to, you know, Southern Africa. Mm -hmm. um, segregation, stroke apartheid at some point, you know. So, you know, I am not entirely surprised that, <laughs> you know, it was an attractive um, region. Um, my family built a presence there in the 70s, I believe, when my uncle finished medical school in, in, at Howard University, actually, local, the D.C. area. And Alabama was offering incentives for black doctors to open their own practices. So this is probably a nice byproduct of <laughs> having these segregated <laughs> type communities, um, which in the end presented an opportunity. Yeah. And of course, when you move to a new country, you go to where you have someone, and slowly but surely his brothers and sisters moved to the South. And now that's really the home away from home for us. So you observed how the mainstream media covers some of the negative aspects of Africa. Yeah, uh, yeah. So sort of two questions there. What can be done to refocus yeah. some of those narratives? And how important is the Internet in that area? Yeah. So the, the answer to both of those questions is, one, a lot is already happening. And the Internet is vital because what it has done is give a very dynamic, very creative um, demographic of young Africans, the, the tools and the access to audiences to actually start reshaping the conversation about the continent and each of their countries. And we're seeing that through web series like An African, um, An African City, which is billed as the sex in the city, but with a focus on young African women. Um, and the, there are just a lot of projects um, that I love. I literally can't keep up <laughs> with all the new things. Um, about Africa, but the internet has been key in opening up the airwaves, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And related to that, I would say mobile as well. Um, mm. For a lot of the younger people in sub-Saharan Africa, their access to the internet is via mobile. So mobile, along with the internet in general, have just been amazing. And the uptake and the interest and the creative uses... Um, but beyond entertainment and telling stories, um, I've seen it, you know, used very nicely by young people in Kenya, for example. When I heard of Obama's visit, um, I think CNN, a CNN reporter, referred to the country as a hotbed of terrorism. And there was this groundswell of social media memes which was saying hotbed of terrorism. Don't you mean hotbed of innovation and entrepreneurship and, you know, all sorts of, you know, good and positive things coming out of the country? And the outcome was that CNN actually sent an SVP to State House in Nairobi to apologize. 
Because, yeah, the internet and mobile equipped the young people to challenge what they felt was misinformation or at least a a limited narrative about their country. So, Um, I mean, that's... And how they experience it. That's really the power of social media there and young people getting involved. That's terrific. Yeah. So... We're all about women on Women Around Town. So talk a little bit about uh, what African women and American women have in common and how we can work together towards some of these goals. I think there's um, historically, you know, we've, both groups have been limited in what they can do as far as economic opportunity, as far as their voices being heard. Um, and whether they're in, in America or in a country in Africa, um, seeing a lot more women taking ownership of their power, um, building businesses, speaking up, marching. I think when we had the march here in Washington last year, the Women's March, it spread across the world, including to countries in Africa. Mm. Women quickly recognized what women were marching for here, but also saw that as an opportunity to support their American sisters, but also to march um, on issues that were important to them in their own countries. And this, again, is where the Internet is powerful. Um, Women around the world, regardless of country, know that they have a lot in common with their peers across oceans, um, and that actually some of the same issues, whether it's sexism, lack of opportunity in the workplace, Um, lack of childcare so they can even be in the workplace are universal and so the conversation I think is um, both local and global and there are a lot of things that um, an American woman could recognize in a woman from Zimbabwe, from Kenya, from Ethiopia um, with nuances for local context um, but very much relatable um, regardless of where the issue is happening. And we certainly have more in common than we have differences that, when you get right down to it. Absolutely. You've embarked on this monumental task. <laughs> I'm so impressed it's to, visit, ambition to visit all 54 <laughs> countries to have conversations with these women and tell their stories. Uh, the women who are entrepreneurs, who are helping to build companies and create jobs. Why do you think it's so important for the world to hear these stories? I don't know that I was thinking about what the world needs to hear, but more thinking about earning the right to even tell their stories. Um, I think there are definitely more and more stories being told, but you can. I I think the number of people telling the stories is still quite limited, Um, and a lot of us are doing it um, via remote control. Um, from afar, and technology allows that. Um, But, you know, I think it matters to to be in a city at least. I mean, my bar is very low for each country. My assumption is that when you visit any country in the world, you will at the very least arrive in the capital city because typically that's where the international airports are. And so if that's as far as I go in each country, that's enough. But I want to be able to capture the sounds of each city and to really be able to see with my own eyes and hear with my own ears the nuances um, of the context that whichever woman's story I'm telling um, belong to, belongs to. Um, I don't want to be generic or general, 
because we're all the same, yes, but also we have our subtle differences. And uh, I think it'll be fun. Do you know, how do you find the women to interview in each of these cities? Is that something that you're still figuring out? Um, Not necessarily figuring out. There's a good word of mouth um, network. And I mean, with some of the young entrepreneurs that are up and coming, a lot of them are on Twitter. Mm -hmm. So that's a good space to find uh, potential interviewees. And I love that platforms like Twitter make it very easy to reach out to a stranger. You know straight away from their bio what their particular interest is. You can read their feed and get a sense of, you know, who they are, at least online. Um, and so, you know, you can make a viable pitch and, and, and get to know people. But then you also have a lot of foundations that have, you know, programs, including the, um, and it's not a foundation, but including the World Economic Forum, which has a fabulous young leaders um, program. And they do a great job of outreach and marketing and also TED. Head Africa, Head mm-hmm. Global. So there are lots and lots of um, initiatives that make it easy to surface um, potential interviewees. But I would like also another reason to, to actually be on the ground is some of the most under-told stories about entrepreneurship in Africa um, are the ones that are not around technology. They're not a web series. They're not starting um, an initiative to diversify the, the type of person included in marketing materials. They're actually taking an opportunity every what, three to 12 minutes at a traffic light when the lights are red and selling fruit or vegetables that they've grown in their gardens and are standing sometimes with a child on their back doing business. That's entrepreneurship as well. And I can't find that if I don't physically you know, right. go and see for myself. Right. Um, it's easy to find the tech folks, and they're amazing and very, very interesting and doing great work. But there's a whole other layer of entrepreneurship across the continent, which I think deserves um, to have a spotlight, and which, in fact, has fed and raised and educated families for generations. Yeah, absolutely. Growing something, putting it in your basket, and doing the time at the traffic light during rush hour to make that sales pitch. Right, right. So, so I mean, you're really defining entrepreneurship in the broadest sense. I mean, you know, a lot of times when we think about an entrepreneur, we think about technology or yeah, business. Yeah. But, you know, it's, it can be anything, really. Yeah. I think I'm um, um, defining it at, at its core. Mm. You know, with technology, you don't have to stand at the traffic light with a child on your back, with a basket on your head, making that sale, and right. with a limited time in which to make that sale, right? Right. Um, with technology, it's easy. You know, you put up your website or you create the Facebook page and (laughs) do your Facebook advertising and you target. You do that from the comfort of your home, you know, behind your computer. So I actually think um, the stories I'm looking for are really about entrepreneurship at its core. And I don't even know if the women that have those types of businesses recognize, you know, just how critical and how impressive their initiative is and how inspiring, certainly, for me. So when you do this, you can also create a network among all of these women you're meeting all over the continent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's um, possible, I think, because one of the technologies which has gained really, really um, strong traction, um, both in sub-Saharan Africa and in Asia, 
South Asia and other um, parts of Asia um, is WhatsApp, which, of course, is accessible on your mobile and which um, I see being used a lot, um, lots of groups being um, created and lots of conversations going. So people want the social networking, um, but not necessarily the... um, the risk of their conversations being potentially seen by people who are not explicitly invited to their conversations, which is always, you know, possible on platforms like Facebook and Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, I'm definitely on the lookout for for some of these WhatsApp groups. Um, so if anybody listening actually knows of any African women entrepreneurship WhatsApp groups, please. Please let you know. <laughs> yes. Uh, you're not only going to the continent of Africa, but you're working with communities and groups here, too, to get them involved in all of this. So why is that so important to have people who have, you know, who live in the U.S. or live in other countries but have roots in Africa yeah, to yeah, get them yeah. involved? Yeah, because um, they're all Africans, ultimately, and the diaspora is, you know, a big part of um, African history. Um, all or most of us have people in other countries and certainly um, during the the toughest times for Zimbabwe um, people in the diaspora were, were quite important to a lot of families um, in terms of money for school fees for example or even money for health care um, so the diaspora continental relationship has always been strong there's a very yin yang um, sense to it is how people in the diaspora, I guess, stay rooted in who they are because they can still go home and visit and and have roots um, and feel grounded. Um, quite often, being an African in another country, you know, is challenging. Sure. Um, and so, I think it works for both parties um, to 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 have that connection. And it is a connection that I know exists, um, that I certainly have. Um, I, I have people. <laughs> mm. I have people when I go to Africa, whether it's my own family or through friends of friends. There's always somebody that somebody can connect you with to make your visit that much easier um, and that much more fun. So I feel local. Um, I don't know if you've listened to um, Taya Selassie, the Ghanaian-Nigerian mm-hmm. writer. She always says, don't ask me where I'm from, ask me where I'm local. And we all have different cities, different countries, different places where, depending on why we're going, we feel local Mm. because we have connections, we have permission, so the right to be in that place, whether it's your passport or a visa, however, but when we get there, we have rituals and routines um, that are specific to that context. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm fascinated by that. Um, and I think for a lot of Africans in the diaspora, um, there are things that we do and enjoy at home when we're in whichever country in Africa, you know, that are very different to what we do when we're out here right, right. <laughs> in the countries that we live in, in whichever part of the world that's not Africa. One of the things... I wonder about, with all of the interest in ancestry and your DNA and all of this, I mean, we see commercials on TV where people are 
finding out their country uh, yeah. of origin and you know getting into that uh, heritage. Yeah. And I wonder if that's also going to increase interest in finding out more about various African countries when you know uh, people from African heritage who live in other countries find out that they have a, a real connection with an African country. I think that's um, a really good point. The fact that um, it's a growing industry and a very popular service and people are actually willing to pay to see where in the world they belong um, is a great sign. And as you say, once they have a sense of ownership and a sense of belonging um, to a country or a specific part of the continent, then yes, the conversations they have about Africa are suddenly very different. So they can actually take the time to research a specific segment of it, which means something to them. Um, And by extension, they become a, a positive voice for Africa. And how they think about the continent is not limited to what they hear in mainstream news. And nothing, as we know, even in relation to some of the bigger countries, scandal, negativity, is just always a bigger headline. Um, it's, it's not a problem you know, that's unique to how Africa is reported, especially increasingly with the 24-hour news, 24 news cycle. Um, but... It is a problem that I think can be unpacked and and dismantled, um, whether it's about African countries or other parts of the world, because now people have a personal curiosity in particular about the continent, and they can find a connection, a very personal connection for themselves. Um, and I'm guessing, you know, the first thing you do when you, you know, when you realize that there might be a segment of the of the continent that you belong to, is to want to visit, right? And you know, there's great information out there about different countries. And so I would hope the next step from that DNA test <laughs> is to then go and see for yourself. Well, that leads into my next question, because I did a little research on tourism, and tourism uh-huh. to Africa uh-huh. is up. I mean, the countries that are most often mentioned are Algeria, Egypt, South Africa, Kenya, Morocco, Tunisia, and Tanzania. Uh-huh. But one of my friends from New York told me that she's planning a trip to Botswana, wow. which might be the result of <laughs> Alexander McCall Smith's book. About, about or Prince the, Harry's engagement. Or Prince Harry's <laughs> and, engagement. Yeah, that stone that yeah, was sourced in exactly. Botswana. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. I mean, whatever, uh, you know, people, uh, you know, focus on. Yeah. So uh, is this a potential big growth industry for Africa Absolutely. if they market it properly? Absolutely. And I think um, tourism to Africa has always been big, um, but... Because it's not news, um, it's probably the the best kept secret. Um, Social media and people being able to post their experiences on Instagram and the like um, are probably doing the best job actually of marketing um, Africa as an amazing location for honeymoons, for weddings, for vacations. Um, We have friends actually... um, my son's, his 16, his, his friend's family recently went to Africa for the first time and they went to Zimbabwe, which I highly recommend it, so that's nice, <laughs> and also to South Africa um, and they loved it and they're already thinking about Making a which return. country they want to go to next. They loved it. Yeah, and, and I mean, there's big. so many world wonders 
There are so many Africa world wonders we that have are probably on everyone's Falls. bucket list. Exactly, right? we're one of the seven wonders of the world yeah. um, with Victoria Falls, which the official, the real name, the local name is Moyotunyayo, which is like the smoke that thunders. Oh, beautiful! Yeah. So, and it is. Um, you know, spelled phonetically. <laughs> and so I do try when I can to use that name and not the Victoria Falls, which of course was a nod by the British to Queen Victoria, who has absolutely nothing to do with that right, exactly. <laughs> seventh wonder of the world. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Jacqueline, this has been such a good conversation, and uh, we are going to keep up with your 54 stories on Women yeah. Around Town, and we will let people know. Yeah, yeah, how they yeah. can read about them and listen to your podcasts as you move along with this amazing project. So, yeah, I, as as I was thinking about um, this conversation and the why do I want to do this, it occurred to me um, that I might be responding to the seven-year-old in me. Um, when I started school in England, of course, I didn't speak a word of English. Um, and so you, you remember that when you asked me into this conversation, I immediately recommended somebody else. <laughs> and as I was driving here, I thought, you know, maybe that was the seven-year-old who didn't speak a word of English, that, you know, didn't want to be on the mic or on, in this podcast. Um, and so thank you for you know, insisting that I <laughs> have the conversation. I wasn't going to let you get away. Totally. <laughs> I tried. <laughs> so thank you all for listening again. I'm Charlene Gianetti uh, from Woman Around Town, and we've been talking to Jacqueline Sabanda about 54 stories. Thank you. Thank you.